Well, just know that Bree and I are absolutely excited to be with you all this morning, especially on this weekend, as you all are celebrating Pastor Michael and Terry's 29th anniversary here at Sherwood. What an amazing, amazing accomplishment. Now, I know that you all already know this, but I'm going to say it again. You all are blessed with an incredibly godly and gifted pastor and pastor's wife. We have been blessed, Bria and I, by just the way they have invested in us. Our church out in Las Vegas has been blessed, how they've come out and they've, they've shared there. So I, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I am grateful to be here. I'm grateful for the investment that your pastor has made in us. And I think it's an exciting morning to uh, be at Sherwood. Now, when Pastor Michael asked me to preach his anniversary weekend, it was a little bit earlier in the year. It was before he received his diagnosis at the end of the summertime. And uh, you could say that kind of previous plans and ideas for what the fall would look like and life in general has been a little bit different since then. So I had one place I was going to go until a couple of months ago. And uh, after hearing about his diagnosis and after you all have been through another hurricane that also happened to have the name Michael attached to it, um, and then after the wonderful welcome that everybody received last night with uh, many phone calls in the middle of the night and more storms raging, it seems as though God has an interesting theme. This morning, I'm in a text where I'm talking about Jesus walking on water in the midst of a storm. I had no idea he was going to give me an opportunity to do that coming from the Strauss house over to Sherwood this morning. So um, anyway, God has a sense of humor, and what we're doing right now is we're literally combining two messages into one. So if I talk faster than normal, just uh, write as fast as you can, and we'll see what happens on the other side. So let's set this idea up as best we can. If you were to ask a hundred random people to tell you any of the miracles that Jesus performed, I guarantee you that Jesus walking on water is going to be in the top five if not the top three. It's a message or a miracle that just kind of stands out from all of the other ones. There are 37 recorded miracles that are found in the Gospels that were performed by Jesus. 27 of those miracles are related to health. That is either physical healing from sickness or death, or there is a spiritual healing from demonic possession. There's three miracles that involve catching fish, and there's three that involve food and wine. There's one that involves casting demons into a herd of pigs. That's an interesting one. And then there's three other miracles that show Jesus' power over nature. That is calming the storm, cursing the fig tree, as well as him walking on water. Two of those three miracles are found in our text for this morning. Jesus walks on water in the midst of a storm, and then he calms the storm once he gets into the boat. It's a moment that is rich in symbolism, and it is rich in lessons, and it is high. I do mean high on the awe and wonder scale. It's a moment that so shocked his disciples that it said immediately they began to worship him as the Son of God. Now, bear in mind, this is not the first miracle that they saw him perform. In fact, it's not even the first time that they saw Jesus calm a storm when they're out on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a boat. He already did that back over in Matthew chapter 8. But it is the first and only recorded time of Jesus walking on water. And it's because of that specific event, watching him do the impossible, and then watching the storm cease once he got into the boat, 
that it moved the disciples to the point they saw him in a little bit different way. There's something about the story that draws people in, both by natural curiosity as well as by personal connection. Figuratively, we can all connect with the idea of going through a storm in our life. You can emotionally connect with where the disciples were at, and that is they were tired and they were worn out and discouraged. I mean, emotionally, we can make that connection. And spiritually, we can connect with a view of God who is so sovereign that he walks on the very waters that he made, that he controls a storm that others are afraid of, that he is literally stepping on top of the very things that were terrifying his disciples. There's something about the story that you just sit back and you say, that's my Jesus. You walk away with a little bit of holy boldness, a little bit of comfort and confidence in knowing that water walking Jesus can handle whatever it is that you might be going through. So it's a story that has caused a lot of comfort to people over the years. But here's the danger in a story like this that's very familiar. That is, we can get so excited about the storm, we can get so mesmerized by the water walking, and we can get so excited about our personal connection and how we can connect with what the disciples are going through that we can miss the bigger picture that's happening here. This story is actually like scene three out of four in a much bigger narrative. And if you miss the other scenes, you miss the depth of what Jesus is trying to convey and to teach his disciples. So this morning, we're going to go through these different scenes. I'm going to try to touch on those as best I can. And uh, also, there's a lot of fill in the blanks. You've got two different sheets of notes we're going to try to work through this morning. So whenever I go past the one, just roll into the next one, and we'll see where we can go from there. So if you're not already there, I invite you to go with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter number 6. Gospel of John, chapter number 6, we're going to be in verses 16 through 21 this morning. I'm speaking this morning on the subject, lessons in the storm, lessons in the storm. As you find your place in the text, let's take just a moment and pray as we dig into this. Heavenly Father, we ask today that you would give incredible clarity. God, you knew far before this morning ever happened what this day was going to look like. So God, I pray that you would use your word and your spirit to minister to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to hold John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21 open, and what we're going to do is we're going to address that as we begin to share the story itself. Now, I said just a moment ago that Jesus walking on water in the midst of a storm is actually seen three out of four in a much bigger storyline. I've included all four scenes in your notes with the references for where they're found in each of the different gospel accounts. So scene number one is Jesus sends the disciples out on mission, and they report back when they return. Scene number two, Jesus feeds 5,000 men with a child's lunch. Scene number three, Jesus walks on water and calms the storm. Scene number four, Jesus teaches on the bread of life. Each of these scenes are connected together by the gospel writers because the events of one are then illustrated in the lessons of the others. 
And together, when you see all the stories side by side, you can begin to see the context and the depth of meaning and what it is that Jesus is teaching his disciples on a much bigger uh, open detail. Now, the other thing I'd like to say is I put all of the references in for you. So if what I'm saying you don't find in John chapter 6, it's because it's recorded in one of the other gospel writers that's also referenced there in your notes. So let's bring all of these pieces together. Look at scene number one. That is Jesus sends the disciples out on mission and they report back when they return. How the disciples were sent and what the disciples reported when they returned is what sets the ball in motion for these several stories. Whenever they were sent out by Jesus, they were sent out in pairs they were given authority over unclean spirits. They were given the ability to heal the sick. And they were also given their message to preach. And that is the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is the one who gave them all of those things. Now, Jesus was also very clear. They were to take nothing for their journey except their staff. They were not to take any money. They were not to take a bag. They were not to take any food. They were not to even take a second change of clothes. From the very beginning, Jesus was building in dependence and faith. They had to trust him to accomplish the mission that he had sent them out to do. So whenever they entered into a town, they were to go to somebody's house, and they were to stay in that house until they were to leave that town. If the people did not receive them or the message, Jesus said, you were to shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. But Mark tells us in his account that when they went out and they returned, it says they returned after preaching the kingdom after healing the sick, and after casting out demons. I mean, they did exactly what Jesus had sent them out to do. But then he puts in this little caveat. There were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They were incredibly busy. In fact, it's right after that that we read these words. Jesus says, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Scene number one now ends. Here's scene number two. Jesus feeds 5,000 men with a child's lunch. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is the one miracle apart from the resurrection of Jesus that's actually recorded in all four gospel accounts. So here's the basics of that story. Instead of the disciples finding that restful, peaceful place to get away, they go from one busy situation directly into another busy situation. When the crowd saw them going across the Sea of Galilee by boat, the Bible says the crowd ran around the shoreline and they met them over on the other side. So whenever they show up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the same ministry they just left is now looking at them in the eyes on the other side as well. The disciples did not have the same perspective that Jesus did. Because they were thinking more about resting and more about themselves, when they saw the crowds, they told Jesus, send the crowds away. But Jesus had compassion on the crowds. When they were hurting, he healed. When they were sick, he healed. When, when they needed to be taught, he taught them. And when they were hungry, he actually fed them. The disciples said, send them away. They didn't have compassion for the same people. Jesus had a different heart. Jesus was focused on the people. They are focused on themselves. 
So when Jesus multiplied the bread and fed the crowds, it said that the people said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world, and they wanted to take him by force and make him their king. Now, three things happen in rapid succession at this point. First, Jesus immediately made his disciples get in a boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. In fact, it says he made them. That word there is to make or to compel or to force people to do what they don't want to do. He made them get in the boat and leave. Second, he dispersed the crowd thwarting any attempt they might have to try to make him their king. And number three, he goes up onto a mountain to pray and to be alone. That now brings scene two to an end. Now it's scene three. This is where our main story is at this morning. That is, Jesus walks on water and he calms the storm. Now, it's likely that his disciples had no earthly idea why he was upset and he sent the crowds away. For them, they might have thought that it was actually an answer to prayer because the people are wanting to make him their king. And according to what Jesus taught them to pray in Matthew 6.10, they were to pray that God's kingdom would come. So they might have thought, man, this is perfect Our rabbi is finally getting the respect he's due. People want to make him king. We're going to reign by his side. But that's not the kingdom he's talking about. And he quickly disperses the crowd. Knowing the disciples' selfish intentions and knowing their misguided enthusiasm, he sends them away to get them away from the crowd. And then he goes up and he spends time alone in prayer. Mark tells us that whenever they left, they went to Bethsaida, and that was to be a prearranged rendezvous point for Jesus and the disciples to reconnect before they both went together to Capernaum. Let's read what it says in John 6, 16 and 17. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. They waited in Bethsaida until it got dark. Jesus didn't show up when they expected. So they went ahead and they started the journey without him. It says that they sailed toward Capernaum and the disciples now get caught in a storm. Verse 18 tells us, the sea began to be stirred up because of the strong wind was blowing. Matthew tells us it blew their boat off course. Mark tells us it blew their ship out into the middle of the sea. So they're trying to skirt along the coastline, and they keep getting further and further away from where they're trying to go. So according to what we find in John 6, 16, it says that they would have started that trip at evening, just whenever it was getting dark. That could have been anywhere between 6 to 9 p.m. When Jesus came walking on the sea towards them, it was the fourth watch of the night. That would have been between 3 to 6 a.m. So they would have been at a minimum six hours, at a maximum 12 hours in a storm, rowing on the Sea of Galilee, trying to get from point A to point B. Meanwhile, Jesus is sitting up on the mountaintop, and he's praying. He's not freaking out. He's not overwhelmed with anxiety. He's not rushing along. By the way, here's just a thought. Omnipotence has no need to rush. When you control it all, there is no moment in which you have to regain control. So it's dark. It's 
The wind is swirling. The water is rough. The disciples now see this ghost-like figure coming to them. They don't recognize that it's Jesus. And please keep in mind, at least seven, upwards of seven, of his disciples were fishermen by trade. So being on the water at nighttime in a rough sea, that's kind of par for the course if you're a fisherman. But... You also know that fishermen are often the most superstitious people on the planet. So just kind of put the scene back in your mind. They're on the sea. It's late at night. They're in the middle of a storm. They're weary from rowing all night. They've been pushed out to sea. They're unable to make it back to safety. They have not slept all night. And right when it seems as those things could not get any worse, there is this ghost-like figure walking on the water coming towards them. All you got to do is throw a clown and some spiders in that boat, and it's the scariest story in your Bible. I mean, it's no wonder that the Bible says they were frightened and they cried out in terror. But listen, there's this little obscure part in Mark's account. It says in Mark 6, 48, he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass by them. What? Is Jesus just out for a stroll? Was he mad at his disciples? Was he in in a hurry? Why did he intend to pass them by? I'll tell you in just a moment. So anyway, at this point, it says that when they saw him, they're terrified. Jesus says, take courage at his eye. Do not be afraid. When they recognized his voice, they welcomed him into the boat. Peter could not wait for that. So Peter says, Lord, if it is you, bid me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. Peter jumps out the boat, starts walking on the water to go to Jesus. But when he sees the wind and the waves, he gets frightened and he loses that faith in that moment. And Jesus begins to stretch out his hand, took hold of him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus and Peter get into the boat. The wind stops. And here's what it says in Matthew 14, 33. And those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you are certainly God's son. Now, listen, it's a great moment. But once again, Mark is the spoiler account. Here's what Mark says. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, for the heart was hardened. He tells us what was in the heart of the disciples at the previous story. That's why I'm saying these stories are linked together. It's the events of one are illustrated in the lessons of the other. So now we've set up the story. That's the heavy lifting. Here's the lessons, and these are in no particular order, and we'll see how many of these we can work through. Here's the lessons you see. Number one, the disciples' fears were calmed when they heard Jesus' voice. They didn't recognize his figure. They didn't recognize his clothes. They didn't recognize his walk. But when they heard his voice, they knew it was Jesus, and they knew it was going to be okay. He said, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Did you know Jesus knows what you need to hear, and he knows when you need to hear it, and he will walk on water in the midst of a storm to get the message to you the right time in the right way? It is their fears were calmed when they heard his voice. Don't let this truth run past you this morning. As Christians, it is entirely too easy for us to think, God, if you do something, then I'll be okay. 
And, and we want it to be like God moved the mountains. God silenced the storm. God fixed my problem. God take care of this. And in our mind, we're thinking we need to see God do something and then we're going to be okay. But that is not correct according to scripture because the issue for the Christian is not God, I need to see you do something, but rather God, I need to listen to what you've already given me in your word. You see, God has given us his word, and his word contains his promises, and his promises are based on his character. So for Christians, our prayer is not, God, if you do something, then I'll be okay. Our prayer is, God, I am okay, because your word has already declared it to be true. So it doesn't matter what we see around us. In fact, I think this is in your notes. Our life is not hinging on what he will do but on what he has done. If God never does anything else for us, again, for the rest of our lives, we are already overwhelmingly blessed by the grace of God. Our, our eternity is secure. Our future is locked in. The issue is not, God, if you do this, then I'll be okay. The issue is, God, you've already done more than I could ever say thank you for. Whenever we are going through storms and problems, we have promises to hold on to. God, I'm okay because your words declared it to be true. I'm okay because you say, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm okay because you said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm okay because the Bible tells me that Jesus is ever interceding on my behalf. It tells me nothing can separate me from the love of God. So Lord, when I can't see your next step, that's okay because I'm holding on to your last promise. We need to listen to the voice, what he shared with us. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I'll occasionally hear believers say, God doesn't speak to me. That is incorrect. It is not that God refuses to speak. Rather, we're often too busy to listen. God has already spoken to us through his word, and he continues to speak wisdom and direction and encouragement into our lives through his spirit. Jesus would often say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. My question for you is, do you have ears to hear? Are you putting yourself in a place where you can listen? Are you taking that time to be in his word and time to be in prayer and time in that intimate relationship with God? There are believers, please hear me, who will continue to walk in fear because they're unwilling to listen to the voice of God. Here's the second truth. The storms or pressures of life reveal our hearts. Maybe you've heard it said, a crisis does not make a hero, it reveals a hero. Who you are under pressure is who you are. So if you're gracious under pressure, it's because you're gracious. If you're calm under pressure, it's because you're calm. If you're a jerk under pressure, I didn't say it. I'm just, I'm just kind of laying that out there. Okay, who you are under pressure is who you are. Storms and problems and pressures, they bring to the surface parts of our character we might not want to see, but we need to see. So let me show it to you in this story. When the disciples were first sent out in scene number one, they were instructed to take nothing with them. Instead of relying on what they had, they were to rely on the one who sent them. 
It was built in, very beginning, faith. Jesus sent him with his authority. He sent him with his healing. He sent him with his message. They cast out demons. They healed the sick. They proclaimed the kingdom. But when they came back at the end of scene number one, they told Jesus everything they did and how busy they were. Not what he gave them the ability to do, not what he did in and through them. They came back and said, Jesus, can I just tell you what we did while we were gone? I mean, it was great. The demons were subject to us. We were preaching. We were healing. Jesus, you love it. It was a good time. I mean, they just keep talking about what they did. And Jesus said, come away by yourselves and rest a while. When Jesus says you need to rest, sometimes that's not a really good thing. So fast forward a little bit. In scene number two, now they're facing a crowd that is hungry. There's not enough food. There's not enough money. But remember when they were sent out before, they had nothing. They had to trust Jesus for everything. Now they're sitting in this situation, and here's what Mark does. Mark is the spoiler. It says in Mark 6, 37, Jesus told the disciples in that moment, you give them something to eat. Hey, you told me about everything you could do. All you got to do is feed them. You had nothing when I sent you out before, and you had everything you needed along the way. Now all they need is something to eat. You feed them. And they said, but, but we don't have anything. We, they didn't have anything the first time Jesus sent them out. Fast forward now into scene number three. Scene number three, the disciples are now in trouble. They're scared. They're tired. They're weary. They're overwhelmed. They're afraid. And here's what Mark 6, 48 says. He came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Why did he intend to pass by them? He tells us in verse 52. They had not gained any insight from the incident of the lows, for their heart was hardened. In other words, they were to have learned a lesson in the feeding of the 5,000. What lesson were they to learn? Have compassion for people. Love people. Stop depending upon yourself. Trust that Jesus can do what you and I could never do. But instead of them learning that, they didn't learn the lesson because it says their heart was hardened. When the people were desperate and weary the day before, they said, send them away, Jesus. Now when they are desperate and weary and in trouble, Jesus comes to them and intends to pass them by as if to say, Hey, guys, how does that feel when someone doesn't care about you in your hour of need? <laughs> Jesus is good. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I, I began to see these stories, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, the way he ties things together is beautiful. He, here's the point. They spent an entire night straining at the oars to try to get from point A to point B. Here's my question. Did they learn anything about trying to do things in their own strength that night? God doesn't want people to just do his bidding. He wants people to represent his heart. He wants us to love what he loves and hate what he hates and to be disturbed by what disturbs him. He could have a monkey do the task. He wants his disciples to represent his heart. So may I ask you a question? What is your storm teaching you about your heart? What lessons is God bringing up in your storm that's revealing a part of your heart, your character, that maybe you don't want to see, but you need to see? 
Let's go on to our next truth from there. That is, some storms may be about disobedience, spiritual balance, or living in a fallen world. Now, this answers the why question. Everybody who's going through a storm or a problem, they're, they're wondering why. Why is this happening to me? I can't give you the answer for that. But I can at least direct you to three biblical possibilities here. The first is sometimes we encounter a storm because of disobedience. Jonah is a fantastic example. God told him to go to Nineveh. He disobeyed. And disobedient storms are there of our own doing. They're to teach us a lesson about the inevitable result of walking outside of God's will and outside of God's way and outside of God's truth. Those storms are the inevitable result of us reaping what we sow. Sometimes we encounter a storm because God is reestablishing spiritual balance. Think about this. This is great. When you obey God and you desire to be used by him, there's often a certain level of success that God brings with that. It differs person to person, situation to situation. But the danger is thinking that because you were present when it happened or that you were involved while it happened, that you're actually the reason it happened. And pride begins to sink in, and we substitute our identity in Christ for our service for Christ. We, we begin to see our acceptance through the lens of our performance. So to reestablish a spiritual balance in our life, God allows us to have victories and defeats, ups and downs, good and bad moments. He gives us just enough victory to keep us hopeful and just enough defeat to keep us humble. And he has both of those that he brings in. Now, remember where the disciples were. When they had been sent out and seen one, they came back and they're like, Jesus, it was awesome. We healed people. We preached the kingdom. We cast out demons. But then they get into the next scenario. And they drew a blank as to how they were to go through and feed the crowd. Now they're in the middle of a sea. They, they're drawing a blank again because they're not able to do it themselves. And in this situation, they're now encountering a different type of storm. God gives us the ups and the downs, the good and the bad. And finally, there are some storms that we encounter just as a result of living in a fallen world. These are not storms of our making or storms to restore spiritual balance. They are storms that come based on the relationships of our lives upon sickness and disease, upon unexpected events that are just happening in our world. Whenever you're in that type of a storm, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Don't overthink the storm. Look to the one who's walking on the waves. Here's our next truth I want you to see. Unless you're invited by Jesus, stay in the boat. All right? Come on now, there's, there's a lot of honesty going on in this one this morning, okay? Peter gets a lot of grief because he stepped out of the boat, started walking on water, then he saw the wind and the waves, and he gets fearful and begins to sink. And the other disciples get grief because people are like, well, why aren't you more like Peter? I think we need to give both of them some grace here. Before doing anything, Peter said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Peter didn't step out till Jesus said, come. Peter asked and heard before he acted and stepped out. 
Why is that important? Because there's a lot of well-meaning Christians who are sinking in their situation because they presumed upon the activity of God. Faith is not jumping out of the boat and hoping God's going to hold you up. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If God has not spoken, you have not heard, therefore it is not faith. Does that make sense? All right. So here's the thing. Faith comes by hearing. If God does not invite you to come out of the boat, stay in the boat. You might need one of those to get back home. So this is, again, a very personal illustration for this morning. All right, here's the next truth. Storms expose our lack of margin and need for rest. And there is a rest theme that is happening in each of these different scenes. That is, in the first scene, if you'll remember, they were so busy, it said they didn't even have time enough to eat. That's when Jesus said, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. When they arrived on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the crowd was already there. They didn't get a chance to rest. They went right back into ministry mode. So what happened at the end of that? They were sent by Jesus in a boat to go ahead of them to Bethsaida. Then they took it upon themselves, since Jesus didn't show up on time on their clock, they took it upon themselves to start the journey to Capernaum, find themselves in a storm. Now they've been struggling all night long, no sleep, they're tired, they're weary. It's like three different sessions, all of which no rest, no rest, no rest. You ever feel like that's kind of how your life is going? You go from one difficult situation into another difficult situation, one problem into the next problem, one ministry load into the next ministry load. Here it is. None of us can accurately predict when the next storm is going to come. Unexpected storms will remove you from your normal rhythms of work and rest. You'll become unbalanced. You'll you'll already be off of what you're wanting to do. That's what happens when unexpected things happen. But all of those issues are only amplified when you're running on empty going into that next storm. It puts us at a spiritual disadvantage because when you're running on empty, it affects your emotions and your relationship with God and your decision-making abilities, your focus, your fortitude, your discipline, your perspective. Without margin in rest, you're entering the storm at a spiritual disadvantage. Storms expose our lack of margin, our need for rest. You know what I'll always tell myself right in the middle of a storm? When this thing gets over with, I am going to rest on the other side. I'm going to take some time off work. I'm going to get away from things. And did you know you will never benefit from the rest you don't take? Because there's always another storm coming. If we don't build rest and margin into the very fabric of our lives and our routines, we're in trouble. Here's the next truth. Jesus can do more in an instant than our self-effort could ever accomplish. (laughs) Remember the disciples, they had spent all night rowing and straining at the oars in an attempt to make it to the shoreline of safety. And the Bible says that they're still out, pushed out into the middle of the storm. They're a long distance away from land. So in verse 21, it says, when Jesus arrived at the boat, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Immediately. 
In, in other words, Jesus did effortlessly by himself in a moment what it took all the disciples with all of their strength collectively and could not do for an entire night. He did it in a moment. And do you remember how they got into the storm? Jesus said, wait for me at Bethsaida. But when it got dark and they didn't think he was showing up, they said, we're going to go ahead ahead of him to Capernaum. How did that work out for them? Because they didn't make it to Capernaum on their own. They, they didn't get a head start. Did you know when Jesus says, wait, and you say, I'm going to do it anyway, it's not a head start? It didn't get them anywhere. They spent the entire night working and weary and tired, and they didn't get to where they wanted to be. When Jesus says, wait, wait. When he says, I'll be there, he'll be there. Getting impatient and trying to do it alone will only lead to greater problems and deeper exhaustion. Just let him do his work. Here's the next one. And you all are listening fast. We're cranking right through these truths right now. Here's the next one. The storms of life will test our faith and emphasize God dependence. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I think it's self-explanatory. But let me just kind of show you how there is this focus of trust all the way through each of the different stories. Whenever they were sent out, they were sent with nothing. They had to trust God. Whenever they got to the next place and there was the feeding the 5,000 and there was no food, there was no money, there was no place to buy food, they had to trust God. Now they're out in the boat in the middle of the night in a storm. They can't do anything. They're having to trust God. The storms of life will test our faith and emphasize God dependence. When you're facing something that you can't control, that you can't change, that you can't budge, it forces you to depend on God even if you don't want to. Sometimes that's where we have to be because many times he's been very gentle and gracious in saying, you need to trust me. Oh, no, I got this, God. Oh, no, you, you need to trust me. Oh, God, do you remember what I did last week? I knocked it out of the park last week. No, you, you need to trust me. And he begins to orchestrate circumstances where you have no other option but to depend upon him. And did you know that is one of the most wonderful places you can ever be in in your life? The Bible says his grace is made perfect in that moment. He doesn't need our strength. He doesn't need our wisdom. He needs a willingness and a submission on our side for him to live in and through us. Here's the next one. God reveals himself through the storms. As Jewish disciples, they would have known that the psalmist spoke of God as stilling the roaring seas and ruling the raging seas. They would have know, known that Job chapter 9 verse 8 tells us that God alone tramples down the waves of the sea. They would have been familiar with the story of the Exodus whenever Moses is told by God, here's my covenant name, tell him that I am has sent you. We see that I am and Yahweh are used interchangeably back in Exodus 3.14. So when Jesus comes walking on the sea, when he comes trampling down the waves, when he stills the raging seas, 
Who's the only one the Bible said could do that? God. When his disciples were afraid, Jesus said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. The Greek phrase, it is I, literally is translated, I am. Take courage, I am, do not be afraid. Do you see how he is revealing himself through the storm? If Jesus walks where only God can walk, and if he does what only God can do, and if he answers to a name that only God can hold, who do you think he is? He's God. Is it any wonder that when he gets in the boat, they dropped and they worshipped him as the Son of God because their storm revealed his nature? Here's the next one. And we close out. Problems are peace. Worship is the only appropriate response to Jesus. The wise men fell before him in worship at his birth, Matthew 2. A Canaanite woman whose daughter was demon-possessed bowed before him in worship in Matthew 15. A blind man whom Jesus healed, worshipped him in John chapter 9. The woman who came to the women who came to the tomb after the resurrection, they worshipped him, Matthew 28. Thomas worshipped him, John 20. The rest of the 11 disciples worshipped him, Matthew 28. Although they were amazed by Jesus' miracle, the 12 responded in the only appropriate way they could respond, adoration and worship. So here's my question for you this morning. What is God teaching you through your storms? And you all have had a lot. I mean, I I know that there's issues that you all have been working through and problems that you all have addressed within your city. But I mean, in the last however many months, health issues with your pastor... A hurricane that has led to a lot of devastation. I've even heard this morning of the rains last night flooding people's homes right here. I'm just thinking to myself, there's a lot of storms going on right now. So what's your storm telling you about your heart? Along the way, have you gotten more focused on the problem that you've walked away from worshiping Jesus the way you need to? Through the situations has God brought issues to the forefront in your heart where you're looking and you're saying, I always thought I was a loving, caring, gentle person, but man, I have not been responding in a loving, caring, and gentle way. Our storms will bring out things of our heart we might not want to see, but we need to see. Did you know sometimes God uses the storms to draw his people together in a tighter-knit community? so that they have to trust him, but they get to trust him together? Think about it like this. Your storms are perfectly designed for your sanctification. Don't complain through your storm. Don't try to run from your storm. Don't try to get out of your storm faster. Don't get impatient with God if the storms keep coming. But rather, as the next wave comes, as the next storm comes, use it as an opportunity to grow. Say, God, what are you trying to teach me? 
How can I love you more through the storm, God? Is there a part of my character that you're wanting to address? Did you know you wouldn't know what you know about God today had you not gone through what you went through with God before? What is this storm designed to teach you right now? There might be people here today that you're like, man, Paul, you just kind of been meddling in my business all morning. But you know what? God's word has a way of bringing things to the surface that he's saying, let's talk about this. Let's deal with this. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning, God, that apart from you moving and working and revealing to us just a glimpse of what's going on, that you were orchestrating behind the scenes. God, sometimes we can get so discouraged in the storm that we're not even caring about the lesson. But God, I pray that you would give us eternal perspective this morning. Give us a judgment day clarity that we know exactly what it is that you're trying to reveal to us today. And God, there might be people this morning that, that they just need a time of prayer, a time of refreshment. They, they might need a time that they're sitting with someone and just praying. Whatever that might be, God, I pray that you would minister deeply to your people this morning in a way that only you can do. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name.